Section Zero of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Five, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. An outline narrative tracing briefly the causes connections and consequences of the great events from charlemagne to frederick barbarossa charles f horn the three centuries which follow the downfall of the empire of charlemagne laid the foundations of modern europe and made of it a world wholly different politically socially and religiously from that which had preceded it in the careers of greece and rome we saw exemplified the results of two sharply opposing tendencies of the aryan mind the one toward individualism and separation the other toward self-subordination and union in the time of charlemagne's splendid successes it appeared settled that the second of these tendencies was to guide the teutonic aryans that the europe of the future was to be a single empire ever pushing out its borders as rome had done ever subduing its weaker neighbors until the teutonic peace should be substituted for the shattered roman peace soldiers should be needed only for the duties of police and whole civilized world again obey the rule of a single man instead of this the race had since followed a destiny of separation europe is divided into many countries each of them a vast camp bristling with armies and arsenals civilization has continued hag-ridden by war even to our own day and during at least seven hundred of the years that followed charlemagne mankind made no greater progress in the arts and sciences than the ancients had sometimes achieved in a single century we do indeed believe that at last we have entered on an age of rapid advance that individualism has justified itself the wider personal liberty of today is worth all that the race has suffered for it yet the retardation of well-nigh a thousand years has surely been a giant price to pay this mighty change in the course of teutonic destiny this breakdown of the frankish empire was wrought by two destroying forces one from within and one from without from within came the insubordination the still savage love of combat the natural turbulence of the race it is conceivable that had charlemagne been followed on the throne by a son and then a grandson as mighty as he and his immediate ancestors the course of the whole broad earth would have been altered the francs would have grown accustomed to obey further conquest abroad would have ensured peace at home the imperial power would have become strong as in roman days when the most feeble emperors could not be shaken but the descendants of charlemagne sank into a decline he himself had directed the fighting energy of the francs against foreign enemies his son and successor had no taste for war and so allowed his idle subjects time to quarrel with him and with one another the next generation under the grandsons of charlemagne devoted their entire lives to repeated and furious civil wars in which the empire fell apart the flower of the frankish race perished 
and the strength of its dominion was sapped to nothingness there were three of these grandsons and when their struggle had left them thoroughly exhausted they divided the empire into three their treaty of verdun of eight forty three is often quoted as beginning the modern kingdoms of germany france and italy the division was in some sense a natural one emphasized by differences of language and of race italy was peopled by descendants of the ancient italians with a thin intermingling of goths and lombards france held half romanized gauls with a very considerable percentage of the frankish blood while germany was far more barbaric than the other regions its people whether frank or saxon were all pure teuton and still spoke in their teutonic or german tongue the franks themselves however did not regard this as a breaking of their empire they looked on it as merely a family affair an arrangement made for the convenience of government among the descendants of the great charles so firm had been that mighty hero's grasp upon the national imagination that the francs accepted as matter of course that his family should bear rule and rallied round the various worthless members of it with rather pathetic loyalty fighting for them one against the other reuniting and redividing the various fragments of the empire until the feeble carlovingian race died out completely it is thus evident that there was a strong tendency toward union among the francs but there was also an outside influence to disrupt their empire charlemagne had not carried far enough their career of conquest he subdued the teutons within the limits of germany but he did not reach their weaker scandinavian brethren to the north the danes and norsemen he chastised the avars a vague non-aryan people east of germany but he cannot make provisions against future asiatic swarms he humbled the arabs in spain but he did not break their african dominion from all these sources as the francs grew weaker instead of stronger their lands became exposed to new invasion let us take a moment to trace the fortunes of these outside races though the main destiny of the future still lay within teutonic europe and speaking of the followers of mahomet we might perhaps at this period better drop the term arabs and call them saracens they were thus known to the christians and their conquests had drawn in their train so many other peoples that in truth there was little pure arab blood left among them the saracens then had begun to lose somewhat of their intense fanaticism feuds broke out among them different chiefs established different kingdoms or caliphates whose dominion became political rather than religious spain had one ruler egypt another asia a third in the eleventh century an army of saracens invaded india and added that strange and ancient land to their domain europe they had failed to conquer but their fleets commanded the mediterranean they held all its islands sicily crete sardinia and corsica they plundered the coast towns of france and italy there was a sarcenic ravaging of rome on the whole however the wave of mahometan conquest receded in spain the remnants of the christian population visigoths romans and still older peoples pressed their way down from their old-time secret mountain retreats 
and began driving the Saracens southward. The decaying Roman Empire of the East still resisted the Mahometan attack. Constantinople remained a splendid city, type and picture of what the ancient world had been. While the Saracens were thus laying waste the Frankish Empire along its Mediterranean coasts, a more dangerous enemy was assailing it from the east. Toward the end of the ninth century, the Magyars, an Asiatic Turanian people, burst on Europe, as the Huns had done five centuries before. Indeed, the Christians called these later comers Huns also, and told of them the same extravagant tales of terror. The land which the Magyars settled was called Hungary. They dwell there and possess it even to this day. The only instance of a Turanian people having permanently established themselves in an Aryan continent and at the expense of Aryan neighbors. From Hungary, the Magyars soon advanced to the German borderline and made fierce plundering inroads upon the more civilized regions beyond. They came on horseback, so that the slower Teutons could never gather quickly enough to resist them. The marauding parties, as they learned the wealth and weakness of this new land, grew bigger, until at length they were armies and defeated the German Franks in pitched battles, and spread desolation through all the country. They returned now every year. Their ravages extended even to the Rhine and to the ancient Gallic land beyond. The Frankish Empire seemed doomed to reenact, in a smaller, far more savage way, the fate of Rome. Yet more widespread in destruction, more important in result than the raids of either Saracens or Magyars, were those of the Scandinavians or Northmen, these the latest, and perhaps therefore the finest flower of the Teutonic stock, are closer to us, and hence better known than the early Goths or Franks. Shut off in their cold northern peninsulas and islands, they had grown more slowly, it may be, than their southern brethren. Now they burst suddenly on the world with spectacular dramatic effect, wild, fierce and splendid conquerors as keen of intellect and quick of wit as they were strong of arm and daring of adventure we see them first as sea robbers pirates venturing even in charlemagne's time to plunder the german and french coasts one tribe of them the danes had already been harrying england and ireland only alfred by heroic exertions saved a fragment of his kingdom from them later under canute they become its kings. The Northmen penetrate Russia and appear as rulers of the strange Slavic tribes there. They settle in Iceland, Greenland, and even distant and unknown America. Meanwhile, after Charlemagne's death, they become a main factor in the downfall of his empire. Year after year, their little ships plunder the undefended French coast until it is abandoned to them and becomes a desert. They build winter camps at the river mouths, so that in the spring they need lose less time and can hurry inland after their retreating prey. Sudden in attack, strong in defense, they venture hundreds of miles up the winding waterways. Paris is twice attacked by them and must fight for life. They penetrate so far up the Loire as to burn Orleans. It was under stress of all these assaults that the Franks, Grown too feeble to defend themselves, as Charlemagne would have done, by marching out and pursuing the invaders to their own homes, 
develop instead a system of defense which made the Middle Ages what they were. All central authority seemed lost. Each little community was left to defend itself as best it might. So the local chieftain built himself a rude fortress, which in time became a towered castle, and thither the people fled in time of danger. Each man looked up to and swore faith to this his own chief, his immediate protector, and took little thought of a distant and feeble king or emperor. Occasionally, of course, a stronger lord or king bestirred himself and demanded homage of these various petty chieftains. They gave him such service as they wished or as they must. This was the feudal system. The inclination of each lesser lord was obviously to assert as much independence as he could. He naturally objected to paying money or service without benefit received, and he could see no good that this overlord did for him or for his district. It seemed likely at this time that instead of being divided into three kingdoms, the Frankish Empire would split into thousands of little castled states. That is, it seemed so after the various marauding nations were disposed of. The Northmen were pacified by presenting them outright with the coastlands they had most harried. Their great leader, Rolf, accepted the territory with some vague and ill-kept promise of vassalage to the French king, and with a very firmly held determination that he would let no pirates ravage his land or cross it to reach others. So the French coast became Normandy and the North men learned the tongue and manners of their new home, and softened their harsh name to Norman, even as they softened their harsh ways, and rapidly became the most able and most cultured of Frenchmen. As for the Saracens, being unprogressive and no longer enthusiastic, they grew ever feebler, while the Italian cities, being Aryan and left to themselves, grew strong. At length, their fleets met those of the Saracens on equal terms and defeated them, and gradually wrested from them the control of the Mediterranean. Invaders were thus everywhere met as they came locally. There was no general gathering of the Frankish forces against them. The repulse of the Huns proved the hardest matter of all. Fortunately for the Germans, their line of Carlovingian emperors died out, so the various dukes and counts practically each an independent sovereign, met and elected a king from among themselves, not really to rule them, but to enable them to unite against the Huns. After their first elected king had been soundly beaten by one of his dukes, he died, and in their next choice they had the luck to light upon a leader really great, Henry the Fowler, more honorably known as Henry the City Builder, taught them how to defeat their foe. Much to the disgust of his simple and war-hardened comrades, he first sent to the Hungarians and purchased peace, and paid them tribute. Having thus secured a temporary respite, Henry encouraged and aided his people in building walled cities all along the frontier. He also planned to meet the invaders on equal terms by training his warriors to fight on horseback. He instituted tournaments, and created an order of knighthood, and is thus generally regarded as the founder of chivalry, that fairest fruit of medieval times, 
which did so much to preserve honor and tenderness and respect for womankind. When he felt all prepared, Henry deliberately defied and insulted the Hungarians, and so provoked from them a combined national invasion, which he met and completely overthrew in the Battle of Merseburg, 933. A generation later, the Huns felt themselves strong enough to try again, but Henry's son, Otto the Great, repeated that chastisement. He then formed a boundary colony, or East Mark, from which sprang Austria, and this border kingdom was able to keep the weakened Huns in check. At the same time, there was growing up in Russia a Slavic civilization, which received Christianity from the south as it had received Teutonic dominion from the north, and so developed along very similar lines to Western Europe. The Russian states served as a barrier against later Asiatic hordes, and this, combined with the civilizing of the last remnants of the Scandinavians in the north and the fading of Sarsenic power in the south, left the tottering civilization of the west free from further barbarian invasion. We shall find destruction threatened again in later ages by Tatar and by Turk, but the intruders never reach beyond the frontier. The Teutons and the half-Romanized ancients, with whom they had assimilated, were left to work out their own problems. All the ingredients, even to the last, the Northmen, had been poured into the cauldron. There remains to see what the intermingling has brought forth. We have here, then, somewhere about the middle of the tenth century, a date which may be regarded as marking a distinctly new era. The ceaseless work of social organization and improvement, which seems so strong an instinct of the Aryan mind, has been recommenced again and again from under-repeated deluges of barbarism. Today, for nearly a thousand years, it has progressed uninterrupted, except by disturbances from within. Nor does it appear possible, with our present knowledge of science and of the remoter corners of the globe, that our civilization will ever again be even menaced by the other races. Chronologists frequently adopt as a convenient starting point for this modern development the year 962, in which Otto the Great, conqueror of the Huns, felt himself strongly enough to march a German army to Rome and assume there the title of emperor which had been long in abeyance. To be sure, there was still an emperor of the East in Constantinople, but nobody thought of him. And to be sure, the power of Otto and the later emperors was purely German, with scarce a pretense of extending beyond their own country, and sometimes Italy. Yet here was at least one restored influence that made toward unity, and by its own devious and erratic ways toward peace. It must not be supposed, of course, that there was no more war. But, as it became a private affair between relatives, or at least acquaintances, its ravages were greatly reduced. It was accepted as the pastime of gentlemen, the sport of kings, and though we may quote the phrases today with kindling sarcasm, yet they open a very different vision from that of the older inroads by unknown hordes, frenzied with the passion and the purpose of the brute. The usefulness of the common people was recognized, and they were allowed to continue to live and cultivate the ground, 
while all the great dukes and even the lesser nobles having secured as many castles as possible entrenched themselves in their strongholds and defied all comers they asserted their right of private war and attacked each other upon every conceivable provocation whether it were the disputed succession to some vast estate or the ravage spread by a reckless cow in a foreign field indeed it is not always to distinguish these private wars from mere robberies or plundering expeditions and it is not probable that the wild barons exercised any very delicate discrimination even otto the great had little real influence or authority over such lords as these his immediate successors found themselves with even less in short it was the golden age of feudalism of the individual feudal lords in italy there was no central authority whatever nor among the little christian states gradually arising in spain in france and england the title of king was but a name france was really composed of a dozen or more independent counties and dukedoms for a while its lords elected a king as the germans did and gradually the title became hereditary in the capet family the counts of paris who had fought most valiantly against the northmen but the entire power of these so-called kings lay in their own estates in the fact that they were counts of paris and by marriage or by force were slowly adding new possessions to their old any other noble might have been equally fortunate in his investments and wrested from them their purely honorary title in fact there was more than once a king of aquitaine yet in ten sixty six william the conqueror was able to form for a moment a strong and centralized monarchy in england with him we reach the period of the second northman or now norman outbreak the marauders had grown polished but not peaceful in their french home they had become more numerous and more restless until we find them again taking to their ships and seeking newer lands to master only they go now as a civilizing as well as a devastating influence most famed of their undertakings of course was william's conquest of england but we find them also sailing along the spanish coast entering the mediterranean seizing the balearic isles making out of sicily and most of southern italy a kingdom which lasted until eighteen sixty and finally ravaging the eastern empire and entering constantinople itself last and mightiest of the wandering graces they accomplished what all their predecessors had failed to do in england william with the shrewdness of his race recognized the tendencies of the age and erected a state so planned that there could be no question as to who was master he gave fiefs liberally to his followers but he took care that the gifts should be in small and scattered parcels no one man controlled any region sufficiently extensive to give him the faintest chance of defying the king william had the famous domesday book compiled that he might know just what every free man in his dominions owned and for what he could be held accountable the england of the later days of the conqueror seemed far advanced upon our modern ways but what can one man however able and advanced do against the current of his age 
history shows us constantly that the great reformers have been those who felt and followed the general feeling of their times who became mouthpieces for the great mass of thought and effort behind them not those who struggled against the tide william's successors failed to comprehend what he had done or why by the time of stephen eleven thirty five we find the barons of england well-nigh as powerful as those of other lands a civil war arises in which stephen and his rival matilda are scarce more than pawns upon the board the lords shift sides at will retreat to safety in their strong castles plunder the common folk and make private war quite as they please if any sage before the reign of the emperor barbarossa that is before the middle of the twelfth century had studied to predict the course of society he would probably have said that the empire was wholly destroyed and that the principle of separation was becoming ever more insistent that even kings were mere fading relics of the past and that the future world would soon see every lordship as independent state amid all this turmoil of the upper classes one would like to know what was the condition what the lives of the common people unfortunately the data are very slight we see dimly the peasant staring from his field as the armed knights ride by we see him fleeing to the shelter of the forests before more savage bandits we see the people of the cities drawing together building walls around their towns and defying in their turn their so-called overlords we see henry the city builder thus become champion of the lower classes despite the strenuous warning of his conservative and not wholly disinterested barons we see shadowy troops of armed merchants drift along the unsafe roads and most interesting perhaps of all we see one arnold of brescia an italian monk advocating a democracy actually urging a return to what he supposed early rome to have been a government by the masses arnold too you will see was in advance of his time he was executed by the advice of even so good and wise a man as saint bernard but the principle of modern life was there the germ seems to have been planted these humble people of the cities citizens grew to be rulers of the world there was a revival too of learning in this quieter age schools and universities became clearly visible abelard teaches at the great university of paris lectures to forty thousand students if one chooses to believe in such carrying power of his voice of such radiating power of his influence at second hand through those who heard the arts spring up great cathedrals are begun the wonder and despair of even twentieth-century resources royal ladies work on tapestries queer things in their way but certainly not barbaric musical notation is improved manuscripts are gorgeously illumined paintings and mosaics though of the crudest reappear on long barren walls civilization begins to advance with increasing stride of all the influences that through these wandering and desolate ages had sustained humanity and helped it onward the mightiest has been left to speak of last 
it was christianity a christianity which had by now taken definite form as the roman catholic church strongest of all the institutions bequeathed by the ancient empire to her conquerors was this church indeed it has been said that rome had influenced christianity quite as much as christianity did rome the legal-minded romans insisted on the laying out of exact doctrines and creeds on the building of a definite organization a priesthood a hierarchy they lent the weight of law to what had been but individual belief and impulse thus the church grew hard and strong in the same manner that the early emperors had ordered the persecution of christianity so the later ones ordered the persecution of heathendom nor had the church grown civilized or christian enough to oppose this method of conversion luckily for all parties however the heathen were scarce sufficiently enthusiastic to insist on martyrdom and so the persecuting spirit which man ultimately imparted to even the purest of religions remained latent with the downfall of rome there came another interval in which the church was weak and was trampled on by barbarians and was heroic then the bishops of rome joined forces with pepin and charlemagne christianity became physically powerful again the saxons were converted by the sword so also in henry the fowler's time were the slavic wens these roman bishops or popes were accepted unquestioned throughout western europe as the leaders of a militant christianity a position never after denied them until the sixteenth century in the east however the bishops of constantinople insisted on an equal if not higher authority and so the two churches broke apart in the west christianity undoubtedly did great good its teachings though applied by often fallible instruments and in blundering ways yet never completely lost sight of their own higher meanings of mercy and peace from the abbey of cluny originated that quaint medieval idea of the truce of god by which nobles were very widely persuaded to restrict their private wars to the middle of the week and reserve at least friday saturday and sunday as days of brotherly love and religious devotion the church also from the very early days founded monasteries wherein learning and the knowledge of the past were kept alive where pity continued to exist where the oppressed found refuge it is from these monasteries that all the arts and scholarship of the eleventh century begin dimly to emerge moreover the fact that the teutons were all of a common religion undoubtedly held them much closer together made them more merciful among themselves more nearly a unit against the outside world perhaps in this respect more important even than the religion was the church that is the hierarchy the vast army of monks and priests abbots and bishops spread all over kingdoms yet looking always toward rome here at least was one common centre for western civilization one mighty influence that all men acknowledged that all to some faint extent obeyed the power thus concentrating in the roman papacy made the office one to attract eager ambition it has a political history of its own at first the christian populace that continued to dwell in rome despite the repeated spoliations 
elected from among themselves their own pope or bishop regarding him not only as their spiritual guide but as their earthly leader and protector also naturally in their distress they chose the very ablest men they could their wisest and their noblest it was no pleasant task being pope in those dark days and sometimes the bravest shrank from the position but centuries of war and self-defense developed a roman populace more fierce and savage and degenerate while the growing importance of their pope beyond the city's walls brought wealth and splendor to his office the result was that some very unsaintly popes were elected amid unseemly squabbles the conditions surrounding the high office became so bad that they were felt as a disgrace throughout all christendom and in ten forty six the german emperor henry the third took upon himself to depose three fiercely contending romans each claiming to be pope he appointed in their stead a candidate of his own not a dweller in the city at all but a german henry therefore must have considered the duties of the pope as bishop of the romans to be far less important than his duties as head of the church outside of rome so necessary had this interference by the emperor become that it was everywhere approved yet as he continued to appoint pope after pope churchmen realized that in the hands of an evil emperor this method of securing their head might prove quite as dangerous and unsatisfactory as the former one so the church took the matter in hand and declared that a conclave of its own highest officials should therefore choose the man who was to lead them under this surely more suitable arrangement the papal office rose at once in dignity it was held for a time by true leaders earnest prelates of the highest worth and ability we have said that the rank of the bishop of rome as head of the church had never been seriously questioned among the teutons but now the popes asserted a political authority as well they regarded themselves theoretically as supreme heads of the entire christian world they claimed and even partly exercised the right to create and depose kings and emperors to such a supremacy as this however the teutons were still too rude and warlike to submit much is made of the fact that the emperor henry the fourth was compelled to come as a suppliant to pope gregory at canossa in ten seventy seven but this submission was only forced on him by quarrels with his barons who welcomed the pope as a chance ally it proved the power of feudalism rather than that of religion still we may trace here the beginnings of a later day when spirit was really to dominate bodily force when ideas should prove stronger than swords under these aroused and able popes the western world was stirred to the first widespread religious enthusiasm since the ancient days of persecution jerusalem long in the hands of a tolerant sect of saracens who welcomed the coming of christian worshippers as a source of revenue were captured in 1075 by another more fanatic mahometan sect and word came back to europe that pilgrimage was stopped the crusades followed a great mass of warriors from every nation of the west men who certainly had never intended to go on pilgrimage themselves were roused to what seems a somewhat perverse anger of religious devotion under the lead of godfried of bouillon they marched eastward saw the wonders of constantinople 
marvellous indeed to their ruder eyes, defeated the sultans of Asia Minor and of Antioch, and ended by storming Jerusalem, and erecting there a Christian kingdom where Mahometism had ruled for nearly five hundred years. Of course, a great flow of pilgrims followed them. Religious orders of knighthood were formed to help defend the shrine of Christ, and to extend Christian conquest farther through the surrounding regions. Travel began again. Europe, after having forgotten Asia for seven centuries, was introduced once more to its languor, its splendor, and its vices. The Aryan peoples had at last filled full their little world of Western Europe. They had reached among themselves a state of law and union, confused and weak, perhaps, yet secure enough to enable them once more to overflow their boundaries and become again the aggressive, intrusive race we have seen in them in earlier days. End of section zero.